From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The race for a COVID-19 vaccine is on, and so is the race for treatment. Vaccines are fantastic in the sense that they'll protect a large segment of the population, if you think about the flu vaccine, for instance. But vaccines don't do anything for you if you're already infected with the virus. Thankfully, all viruses have weaknesses, and scientists are targeting those to improve outcomes for people who catch the new coronavirus. And we answer more questions about homemade medical masks, including how one healthcare provider found a way to add some filtration. Then, is working from home making you crazy? CPR's new podcast, At a Distance, offers some tips on how to stay sane while you stay home. So, all the blinds, open all the blinds, turn on all the lights. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Two years ago, Mali Jingilla opened his own restaurant in Inglewood. It was his dream job. Bosphorus has nearly perfect reviews on Google, 4.9 out of 5 stars. Many reviewers comment on Jingilla himself, calling him a true gem, a wonderful burst of energy, and one of the most passionate owners I've ever met. But in the face of coronavirus, Jingilla is unsure about the fate of his restaurant whether takeout and delivery orders can carry it through this tumultuous time, especially when no one knows how long closures could last. People are saying like maybe like six weeks, five weeks, four weeks. In my personal opinion, this is for a, be a long haul, and I, I don't know, maybe like four months. I know that people doesn't like to hear the long-term thing, but to me, that I, like, I am prepared for this. Can I hold on four months? I don't know. Despite the financial uncertainty, Jingilla believes in the power of community. He grew up in Turkey where his father taught him to always have enough food for a neighbor or friend. He's determined to carry on that sentiment even through the COVID-19 closures. There's a family that I know. Her husband is in Europe. He cannot come in. And she got laid off and she has got two kids. And I told them, like, don't panic. I am here. I will help you. You can get the food here, you know, and this is not a huge corporation and I don't have a like boss. No one can come to me and tell me why are you giving this? That's Mali Jingilla, owner of Bosphorus, one of the few Turkish restaurants in Metro Denver. On Colorado Matters, we're committed to telling your stories, the way coronavirus crisis is affecting you. Email a voice memo to coloradomatters at CPR.org. That's coloradomatters at CPR.org. We're staying at home to stop the spread of COVID-19, trying to keep people from catching it in the first place. But if you do get it, right now there are no drugs to treat it. So University of Colorado scientists are working on what's called an antiviral inhibitor. When people catch COVID-19, the virus tells their cells to produce more viral proteins. In very simple terms, that's how the virus reproduces itself and makes people sick. These Colorado researchers are developing a treatment that cuts those viral proteins so they can't keep reproducing. Chemist Jed Lamp can explain. He's an assistant professor at CU's pharmacy school, and he's on the phone. Hi, Jed. Hi, Avery. It's nice to be with you. There's a lot of fear around this novel coronavirus right now. Comfort me by telling me what its weaknesses are. Yeah, there is a lot of fear, you know, and um, 
I think, you know, one thing I'd like your listeners to take home today is just that, you know, silver lining on the cloud. Uh, There's so many people working on this right now, so many scientists working on it. And from my perspective as a scientist, it's very exciting because we've gone from identifying the virus just a few months ago in December to sequencing the entire genome. Uh, A group in China did that and finished it at the end of January. And now that allowed us to clone, make copies of some of the important proteins in the virus so that we can start developing drugs to target them. And the good news is, yes, viruses, all viruses have weaknesses. Now, we do a lot of work with HIV in my lab and HIV inhibitors. And there's a class of HIV inhibitors called protease inhibitors, which are super super effective at killing the virus. Uh, they were developed in the early 90s, and some of your listeners may remember that, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, HIV was a death sentence. Um, pretty much everybody contracted HIV would develop AIDS eventually. So these protease inhibitors were a game changer for that and allow HIV now to be a manageable disease. Um, so the protease is this enzyme. It's You might think of it as kind of like a Pac-Man. So proteases go along and they chew up proteins. And in fact, you have some of those in your intestine to help you digest foods. But the virus uses it in a different way. So when it produces all the proteins it needs, as opposed to producing them one at a time like we do, it produces a long ribbon with all of the proteins needed to make that that capsid, you know, that scary figure we always see that looks like a soccer ball. or so It's that like a I ball with spikes all over the outside. Yes, that guy. Exactly. And so that shell is composed of all these different proteins. But initially, those proteins are produced in one long ribbon. And the protease acts as a pair of scissors, more like, more in this case, more than a Pac-Man. And it'll cut each one of those proteins individually. So, so if you can inhibit that protease, you stop the virus dead in its tracks. And again, these inhibitors uh, like ritonavir and lopinavir, a couple of them, that have been very effective to treat HIV. We were working on those already, trying to improve their efficacy against HIV when we got the idea, well, why don't we try to repurpose these to target the protease in the COVID-19 virus? So in layman's terms, if I have this right, an antiviral inhibitor, essentially, it keeps it from making that long string of proteins. And so it kind of cuts it off at the knees. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. A a protease inhibitor does that. Now, there are different types of antiviral inhibitors. So this is what's great about what's going on in the research field right now is that people are trying to target different types, uh, different uh, stages of the viral life cycle. At the end of the day, you have several approaches uh, from different groups. uh, And of course, the vaccine approach as well, trying to target this virus. So I really think there is hope. Um, It's not going to happen, unfortunately, in the next few weeks, but I think uh, in months and, uh, you know, years ahead, we're definitely going to have much better therapies uh, for when we have another outbreak. It's actually very nice to know that there are a lot of different ways to come at fighting the new coronavirus. So this drug would stop the spread of the virus in someone who's infected. Rather than create a drug from scratch, which could take years to develop and test, your team is using a drug used to treat HIV. Why take that approach? Mainly because there's two criteria uh, by which the FDA approves new drugs, and that is safety and efficacy. So 
us in the medical profession, you know, our first rule is do no harm, right? So when we're developing a new drug to target a virus, we want to make sure that that drug's safe for the patients and it doesn't do anything to hurt them. That's number one. Number two, it has to be efficacious. So it actually has to treat the virus, you know, it has to do what you're claiming it will do. And what's nice about taking this approach where we're using, we're starting out using these old inhibitors that were uh, very effective at treating the HIV virus to treat this new virus is that we know they're already safe and effective, at least against that virus. So we're not starting from scratch all over again. Now, you know, each one of these proteases are a little bit different. So the protease from HIV, it's a little bit different than the protease from COVID-19. So these antiviral inhibitors aren't going to be nearly as effective against COVID-19. And that's what we've seen in the clinic. These have actually been tested in the clinic in China. And there's an ongoing trial in Oxford in the UK with these two HIV inhibitors against COVID-19. They don't seem to be nearly as effective. That's not a surprise for us. If you think about, you know, these proteases being a picture puzzle, and let's say you have one piece of that picture puzzle missing, but you have another piece from a different picture puzzle, right, that happened to get in the box by accident. Well, it's not really going to fit in that empty space, right? So you can shave it and shape it to try to make it fit in there better than it would normally. Um, and that's kind of what we're trying to do. So we're taking those inhibitors, you know, that may not fit this particular protease as well as they do the HIV protease and trying to change them chemically so that they make a better fit uh, to inhibit this protease. What happens if the virus mutates? Ah. That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. That's very problematic. And in fact, this happens all the time with these viruses. And in the case of HIV, it happens so often that you can't just treat the HIV with one drug. You have to treat it with a cocktail of drugs. Now, remember I mentioned there's the reverse transcriptase and attachment inhibitors. So what they do in HIV treatment is they they give you a cocktail so you have an inhibitor from each category in that cocktail that kind of prevents the virus from mutating simultaneously to uh, escape all of those drugs. And that's probably what we'll have to do uh, with the COVID-19 uh, virus as well. But our approach is unique in the sense that what we would like to do ultimately is to create a library of drugs that may target different proteases, including mutant um, proteases from mutant viruses that haven't been identified yet. And then we can go back and quickly test all of those compounds in our system to see which ones will be effective against that new mutation that's, that arises in the environment. And so we hope that this process, you know, this iterative process, looking at which antivirals fit the protease the best, and then trying to modify them to make them fit even better, that uh, that'll lead to a library of compounds that we can use to treat viruses that haven't even been identified yet, or mutant viruses in the future. And I think of the flu vaccine where that virus mutates constantly, and people are constantly exactly. coming up with iterative vaccines. Um, yes. Now, earlier this year, the World Health Organization announced Solidarity, and that's a global trial to collect information on the most promising existing antiviral inhibitors. I know a lot of drug creation it is based on competition. I wonder what it means for your process to have so many involved for the creation of this novel drug application. Well, I think it's great. <laughs> you know, I, I'm an ap academic, so I'm not in this to make money. And for me, it's more about 
who can get to a cure faster. And I think, you know, it's wonderful that we have so many groups competing because this is when science works the best, right? When there's a prize out there and somebody wants to be the first, and you have all these groups taking different approaches. Um, I, I'm, I'm highly confident we're going to have uh, a powerful antiviral inhibitor probably in the next 12 to 18 months come out because there's so many people um, working on this right now. And I'd like to say, you know, the approaches developing antiviral inhibitors and vaccines um, are not mutually exclusive. You know, I think they're both very important because vaccines are fantastic in the sense that they'll protect a large segment of the population. If you think about the flu vaccine, for instance, um, you know, I think last year it had about 60 percent coverage uh, in the population. So a lot of people can take those vaccines and they're going to be effective. But vaccines don't do anything for you if you're already infected with the virus. And what we're seeing right now with this COVID-19 epidemic is that the most vulnerable people in society, so the older folks and people with pre-existing conditions, they're the ones most susceptible uh, to lethality from this virus. So that's the group that a vaccine probably isn't going to help very much because their immune systems tend to be uh, less effective at uh, developing the antibodies to the virus. And so our antiviral therapies are essential to help those people. So I think both of these tracks are important. And I think the competition's fantastic. Maybe I'm the, the weird guy, but I think it's great because what it means for the general public is that they're going to get uh, cures in vaccines much faster than they would ordinarily. Now, the WHO has said the vaccine will take somewhere between 12 and 18 months. It sounds like this timeline is similar for an antiviral inhibitor. That's an expedited timeline, but it feels like a long time to wait for something yeah. to treat this virus that's spreading so quickly. It, it, you know, it is. And I understand that. I mean, you know, if uh, people have loved ones in the hospital, even one day to wait is too long. Um, and the only thing I can say is we're working as fast as we can. But we want to make sure that this drug is, again, safe and effective before it goes out into the public. We don't want to do more harm than good. And I know there's been a lot of talk about repurposing some drugs that were used to for to treat other things, not viruses, um, to treat this virus without a lot of data. And I think that's really important for us to make sure that we have the data that these inhibitors are safe and effective before, um, you know, they're given to your grandmother or grandfather in the hospital. And to be clear, are you talking about drugs like the anti-malaria drugs that the White House has touted? Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about that. And um, I, I think we have to be really cautious about when we repurpose drugs. Uh, it's a fantastic idea, right? Because these drugs have been proven safe and effective for certain indications for certain diseases. But when we just start picking drugs off the shelf and say, well, let's just throw this at it, it, it may not be the best for this uh, particular situation. And chloroquine is a good example of that. That's what we call a narrow therapeutic index drug. So uh, it works fairly well, or at least traditionally it works fairly well against the malarial parasite until, you know, it, it, it become resistant to it. But it's only effective in a certain dose range. So if you get it too high of a dose, it can be extremely toxic. So we want to avoid uh, any other, you know, potential mishaps that we could have by uh, this process of repurposing these old drugs and make sure that they really are safe and effective against this particular virus before we treat patients with them. Jed, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Jed Lamp is an assistant professor in the Skaggs School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus.
As people social distance, a grassroots effort in southern Colorado has actually brought one community closer together, figuratively speaking, of course. CPR editor Kelly Griffin joins me now with what they're doing. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Avery. Kelly, tell us about this grassroots effort in the San Luis Valley. The San Luis Valley Health Department discovered that its orders for medical supplies were coming up short. There was too much demand and they couldn't replenish everything as fast as they had planned to. So they asked Michelle Gay, who is head of compliance for the agency, to lead a new innovations team to try to get through all this. And her first thought was to see how the community could help. The first job was to look at masks, and it really took off. So I want to have her tell the story from there. We have a brilliant seamstress on staff that works in our finance department, and we had run across a pattern that was floating out online that we really liked, but we knew it needed to be tweaked so that it could be used um, kind of in replace of a surgical mask. And I um, gave her the pattern. She met me in my office, and I asked her if she could whip something together in a couple hours so that we could um, determine if this would meet our needs, have some of our nursing team and our provider team uh, take a look at it and see what they liked. So she took it home and she got to working on it and she was looking at the types of material that she wanted to use and realized that the safest thing that we could do is add a pocket in the back of the mask where we could actually slide in and out some type of a filtration system. At the time, she didn't know what that would be, but it was just an idea. She came back within an hour and a half with the mask, and we tried it on nurses. We tried it on providers, and everybody loved it. It was it was exactly what we needed, and they loved the idea of the pocket in the back. So we started doing internal research um, on what would be the best option for filtration to add. And believe it or not, we came up with, it's, it, it's a 3M product that you would use in your own house, um, furnace or uh, an air conditioning filter. And so this is how our community got involved. From that, we have a company here locally called Rustic Log Furniture. It's owned by Randy and Micah Jackson. And Micah said, we've got a laser that can cut this fabric faster than women can cut it, we can probably cut a thousand in the time it would take them to cut a dozen. So Rustic Law got involved in helping us cut out the patterns to the mask. And we were talking about the furnace filters. And we ended up with Christy Mountain Sports, who is one of our outdoor stores here locally, said, you know, bring us those filters, we'll tear them apart. We'll take the wiring off, we'll take the cardboard off, and we'll leave you with just the filter, which is what needs to be cut next to go into the mask. So they got involved with that. They got them torn apart. Our local cleaning company, Weiss Cleaners, said, hey, we will press those filters for you so it makes it easier to cut them to be able to put them back into the mask. So it just became this huge production of our community coming together and um, making the process so much easier. So everything gets cut. The filters um, are stripped out. The filters are ironed. They go back for cutting at Rustic. 
And then Rustic Log is putting t- together packets, like kits, for our um, seamstresses in the community to pick up, be able to sew, and then drop back off um, here at the hospital. It's just amazing. We have such an incredible community. You know, I know a lot of people say that, but um, I never, I never would have imagined that A, we'd be going through what we're going through, and B, that the community comes together and how many of these seamstresses, I mean, I'm two weeks into this position with innovation and I walk in and have calls. Can we help you with gowns? Can we help you with masks every day, all day long? And um, yeah, I think keeping the community busy, helping us is really kind of alleviated some of their, their stress. Kelly, I know we've been getting a lot of questions from listeners about masks. There are groups here in Colorado and across the country making them. So is the approach with furnace filters the answer? At this point, there is no one answer. I should stress that each hospital system, nursing home, health department will make their own judgment about whether to use any masks made outside the official supplies. In this case, the San Luis Valley Health Department was willing to work with the community to develop something they are comfortable with as a last resort. But that doesn't mean there's a new agreement across the state that this is the mask to make. And we know that there are even some medical providers outside of the San Luis Valley that have asked for homemade masks, right? Right. Uh, St. Joseph's Hospital in Denver, for example, has approved a pattern and a group is getting that out to people who want to sew them. Bottom line is, if you want to make masks for the medical community, you need to find the groups online that are developing patterns that hospitals have said they could work with. While the masks they're making in the San Luis Valley haven't been tested for a medical setting, the local health department did research on the filtration rating of the furnace and air conditioning filters they're using, and they feel confident it's a worthwhile substitution if the medical masks run out. And right now, people who are sick should wear surgical masks to keep them from spreading COVID-19. So these homemade masks could be a helpful substitution. And I want to be clear that Michelle Gay is not seeing these as replacing N95 masks. Those are the ones that caregivers and medical providers should use around people infected with the new coronavirus. And the health department will have extensive instructions on the limits of the handmade masks if people use them. Have they used them yet? No. uh, Michelle Gay says she has a pile of about 600 in her office ready to go. But so far, the supplies are holding steady. Kelly, thank you so much. Thank you. CPR editor Kelly Griffin with an update on efforts to make sure healthcare workers have the right kinds of masks. Meantime, the Centers for Disease Control is reviewing its recommendations on masks in light of the broad grassroots efforts to make them, according to the Washington Post. The agency has said those who are sick need to wear medical masks and recommends no masks if you're well. It said DIY masks aren't the solution and could give people a false sense of security. Senator Michael Bennett is calling on the agency to encourage everyone to wear masks because he says there's evidence from elsewhere in the world that it helped. When we come back, a new CPR podcast with advice on adjusting to life under social distancing. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Can you stay up to date on what's important to know while maintaining some sanity? Hey, I'm Alex Scoville, a digital producer at CPR, and the answer is emphatically yes. 
At CPR.org, we're live blogging the news of the day, every day, whether that's the latest from Colorado Governor Jared Polis, event cancellations, the newest number of coronavirus cases in Colorado, or a moment of joy. Get what you need as we all live through these uncertain times. Check it out at CPR.org. What does at a distance mean to you? Guaranteed it's something different than you thought about a month ago. CPR's new podcast called At a Distance tackles this strange isolation we're all facing. It offers ideas on how to live your best life, even when it's pretty much entirely at home. We'll hear the first episode shortly. In the meantime, I'm joined by its hosts, CPR reporters Sam Brash and May Ortega. Sam, May, welcome. Sure. Nice to be How are you? Glad to be here. Sam, what is the inspiration here? What light bulb went off? Um, I, I'm not sure if it was a light bulb that went off so much as something that we tried and, and it just didn't work. Um, we tried to make a straight news podcast answering questions from listeners about the coronavirus, but quickly realized that there were a lot of people already doing that, including Colorado Matters, um, as well as like national efforts, lots of really good straight news coronavirus podcasts. And it didn't really get at what May and I realized we were struggling with, which was how do we adjust to our lives at home? How do we live under the stay-at-home order? How do we go about our lives in a way that feels right, that feels fulfilling, um, even though everything has changed so much? So, so we took that on as the, sort of the problem we wanted to solve for in this podcast and started trying to seek out people who might be able to help. And May, we already hear lots of advice on how to cope with all the changes in people's lives, isolation, working from home or losing a job. What do you two hope to add that's different? Yeah, a lot of people right now don't know what to do and things are feeling really heavy. Um, We are hearing all kinds of advice from all over the place. But Sam and I, what we're doing is that we're trying out ideas, um, physically ourselves, like laying out how to throw an online party step-by-step, or maybe enrolling in online meditation classes, and we'll share firsthand what that's like. Essentially, we're trying things out for the listener at times, so we can show them, hey, maybe this is something that's up your alley that might be able to change your mood or your mindset, maybe distract you a little bit from what's happening. Um, Most of the feedback that we've gotten is about the conversation that Sam and I have. Um, People say that makes them feel better because Sam and I are friends, so we just talk and laugh a lot together, and we're very honest about how we're feeling through all this, and I think that's something different that people really need to make them feel less alone. And of course, you are both having to do this through your own separate homes, hosting this remotely and apart. Um, Sam, what's the most interesting story you've heard in putting this podcast together? Oh, man. Um, well, so to, to preview an episode that will be coming out uh, probably in a couple weeks here, uh, this is just probably what's freshest on my mind, but May and I got to thinking a little bit about, you know, everything that's happening to the economy and if there could be anyone out there who's actually found something, you know, like a business idea that is thriving right now, like a small business too, not like Amazon or these different sort of services that can deliver it to your house. Like who is somebody who is just in their place and have started a business that is really succeeding. And we found this couple um, in Denver who started these audio escape rooms and they've just totally taken off. Um, so it, it, if you've ever played an escape room, you're locked in a room, you have to solve a series of puzzles in order to get out. It's exactly the same thing, except 
you uh, you have to do it all over a Zoom call, which we were just like, what is like, what could that possibly be? And May and I tried it out yesterday, and it was a total blast. It was so much fun. It was great. Yeah, it was really good. We we didn't quite hit the hour deadline, but that's okay. You know, we can't be perfect. <laughs> and I'm really excited to share that episode, not just because you know I think it shows this couple's creativity, but it also uh-huh. I hope gives people a sense that there are ideas out there to be had. That you can still be creative, you can still start businesses. This is not a time where you have to just sit idle. That you know? is so exciting. Well, let's listen to this first episode of At a Distance. Now, you start with a woman who emailed you. She said her life at home is actually going pretty well right now. I can look at my house as a space that confines me, as a jail, or I can look at my house as This is where I'm going to live my life, and I'm going to approach this in a creative way to try to live as full a life as possible from the confines of my house. Her name is Allison Sprana. She lives in Fort Collins, and she has a system in place, a set of tips to keep her sane. Each morning she wakes up and she opens all the windows. She puts on some music. The other day it was some Beatles. She sketches out a plan for the entire day. I want to organize our guest room. It looks like a bomb went off in there. And she makes sure she always has some music playing in the background. When it comes to the staying at home thing, she is nailing it. She is, right? And she has so many good ideas she thinks could work for all of us. But the thing is, Allison hasn't gotten good at all of this in the last few weeks. She's not some stay-at-home savant. It's taken a long time. I've been joking that I'm on day 430 of quarantine um, because I essentially became homebound in January of 2019, even though I have been sick for six years. See, Allison isn't home just because of the coronavirus. She's at home because of a chronic medical condition, and she's had to learn how to live her best life in the confines of her own house because of this disease. She's been dealing with chronic fatigue syndrome for years. It's a poorly understood disease, but it basically means Allison had and will always have a really hard time carrying out basic tasks like thinking, doing errands, and just moving around. And on top of that, she'd have these sudden onsets of pain in her throat and neck. She was a music major in college, and she played the flute in an orchestra, but eventually her illness made it too painful for her to perform, so she had to give it up. And eventually, office work even became too difficult for Allison. Was there a moment specifically that you remember when you decided, this is, I can't go outside as often as I would like to, as often, you know, go ride a bike, take a walk. Was there a specific moment that you remember that sunk in in that different way? Yes. I had been working at the County Department of Human Services part-time prior to that. And I was really struggling. Uh, My health was, like, very much declining. Um, And it got to the point where, like, I could not even manage in a wheelchair with a power assist attachment that would push me. I could not manage going 20 feet from my desk to a fax machine to pick up papers and distribute them to staff. Oh, man. 
And my supervisor, who has been in human services for a long time, sat me down and and she told me, Allison, it's time for you to apply for disability. And um, that was a really hard moment. Sorry. No, you're fine. I just remember crying in her office and I cried for a bit after that because I knew that she was right and I'm so grateful she had that conversation with me. Yeah. That was the moment where I realized like I cannot go outside of my house as much anymore. I cannot even sustain regularly going outside of my house for more than two hours at a time, four days a week. I can't even do that. And I need to fully embrace and accept what my limits are and live within them. Mm-hmm. Right. And and so you decided to basically build a life that exists within your home. Is, is that right? Yep. That's exactly what I did. I approached it as like, okay, I'm going to creative problem solve my way through this. And so... I recreated my life at home. That happened about 14 months ago. But Allison is a positive person. She might be stuck inside for most of the week and confined to a mobility scooter for much of the day, but she says she looks at her new situation as a problem that she could solve with just a little creativity. She says a smart daily routine is the secret to living a great life inside her home. I start by opening all the blinds on my windows in my house, Hmm. every window. Every window? Every window. Why? Leave no stone unturned because (laughs) the light is so important. When you live your life inside your house, you have to model inside your house on the outside world. And Hmm. that includes things like light patterns to make sure that your circadian rhythm doesn't get totally out of whack. Oh, Oh, right. Okay. So if you leave, right, if you leave the blinds closed all day, your body's just like, what? What? (laughs) Yep, exactly. (laughs) So, all the blinds, open all the blinds, turn on all the lights. I know, I know, the efficiency part of me hurts saying that. <laughs> it's okay, I think, I think that's okay. <laughs> and this is where Allison says her experience can really help some of us who are struggling with suddenly having to work from home and steer clear of too much contact with other people. Allison also keeps a productivity planner that helps her map out her day. She looks at her successes from the last week and what she wants to accomplish in the coming week. She also sorts her tasks into mental and physical jobs so she can have a variety of different activities throughout her day. The reason I do it is because I have limited stamina, so I will actually physically suffer if I do too much in a day. Mm. Um, So it has forced me to learn these things, but this is so important for people whose lives are suddenly at home. Um, How come? Why? Like, Because having your whole day in front of you, inside your house, especially on days when there's bad weather, so you can't really get outside, it is overwhelming. And it just can feel like your brain is like, I need to do laundry. I need to clean the kitchen. I need to unload the dishwasher. I need mm-hmm. to do 17 different tasks yeah. for my job. Mm. I need to clean up after my dog. I need, you know, there's Alice so many you're like giving me, You're like freaking me out. Yeah, that has been the Sorry. last four days. <laughs> and here's another one of Allison's important tips. Move around your house. 
fold laundry in one room, make your meals in another room, and do your work in another. When you've been stuck inside for 430 days, sitting at the same place to do tasks on your computer uh-huh. all the time just gets old. Mm-hmm. So, like, when you live your whole life at home, your home is your coffee shop, it's your library, it's your office, it's your school, it's your social space, it's your, your gym, and your space to relax and sleep, which your home always was, right? Right. And so, to me... Like, I have to create that feeling within my own house, which is why I move through different spaces in my house, so it kind of mimics that sensation. Okay. Right. Huh. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, May, I haven't been doing that at all. Have you been doing that? I've been just at my no, kitchen table. No, no, I haven't, I haven't been doing much of anything that they've, uh, <laughs> that people recommend I do. Like, yeah, setting, you know... I don't even, I have been doing everything in my living room, which has made it kind of hard because at the end of the day, like when I'm done working, I just stay there where I was working to watch TV and just relax, Uh which is difficult. And I, I, I know it's not the best thing to do, but I just, you know, like we are not used to this style of living, I guess. Yes. It's a huge adjustment. Yeah. Another pointer from Allison, and and this one might feel a little self-serving. She says she fills her home with all kinds of sounds. Sounds like podcasts or, you know, the Colorado Public Radio newscasts or music. And sometimes she does something even a little more unusual than that. Something else that you can do is source some, like, ambient coffee shop noise so that you hear, like, like, vague chattering in the background, but you don't actually listen to the words that they're saying. It's comforting, too. It's surprisingly Mm -hmm. comforting to just, you don't know them. But even in in life, when you're out at a coffee shop, you don't know them. And their chatter, unrelated to you, is still really comforting. It's part of the human experience to hear other humans. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like, we, we don't even think about that until now that it's gone, that, like, being in public is its own kind of like sensory experience. It, it feels different to be around other people than to be alone. It, it just does. Like, Absolutely. Just, you just know when you're in public. You know when you're alone. And I don't know exactly what it is, but it's interesting to, to hear that you've really tried to adjust for that. Yeah, and in some ways I've tried to recreate it in my own house. And then there's her social life. Allison says you've got to maintain that even if you barely leave the house. So she'll keep in touch with her chronic fatigue support group over text messaging. And she'll use video conference software like Zoom to meet up with friends. And here's another one of her tips, something I didn't really think of. She says play video games with friends online. You're engaging in a shared activity with them that kind of facilitates the socializing. So that not every moment you're just staring at each other's faces trying to come up with things to talk about. And that's essentially (laughs) what we try to do when we talk on the phone, right? You're not engaging in any shared activity at all. You just have to, like, come up with things to talk about. Yeah. Right. My favorite way to deal with that is playing video games online with people that I know, my friends, while (laughs) we talk live. What kind of games do you like? So, one of my favorites is Stardew Valley. Yeah, I like this on the big screen. Isn't it nice? Yeah, I, don't, I just didn't even think of it before. Oh man, it makes such a difference. Yeah. 
it's this really calm farming game. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, yeah, I have friends who really like that game. It's cute. Yeah, <laughs> it's so fun. Yeah. There's so many options. Also, bonus points. It makes you feel like you can get out of the house and do things because in your farm, you can go do whatever you want in your farm. There's no quarantine on the farm. <laughs> it's your farm. <laughs> yep. You can pretend to be a normal person. I think all these ideas are really helpful, or at least they've been helpful for me. But there's another component to all of this for Allison. Something that she says is almost spiritual. I'm curious like what you would say to people who are stuck at home like you were and just feel completely lost right now, not sure what to do with themselves, missing the outside world, uncertain about when things will get quote-unquote back to normal. Like, what message would you have for them? You have to accept what the new normal is right now. It's going to require some soul-searching. Grief will come with that. Let it come. It's going to come in waves. Let that happen. You're not going to be productive every day. On the days that the grief waves come, this is grief for things that can't happen right now. Socializing, for events you were planning, for concerts you were working towards, for sports events you were working towards or looking forward to watching. That grief will come as you accept the new normal that we are in. Is there a some part of you that looks at people like us freaking out about being at home and thinking you guys really don't get it you don't have it that bad yeah and that has been the most complicated thing for me in this whole process and I'm not alone there's a lot of people in the chronic illness world who are feeling that anger and not really sure what to do about it because on one hand we have so much experience with this we could really help normal people who Mm -hmm. are experiencing this isolation for the first time Uh and on the other hand it just feels so unfair There's a lot of uncertainty about when this is going to be over. So especially if people are on, you know, day five, six, seven, eight of quarantine and they're already going crazy, you have to be able to live within the space that you're in. May, I feel like of of all of Allison's tips, like this one for me feels like the hardest. Somehow we have to understand this situation as permanent and temporary at the same time. Yeah, like I just keep thinking about when I might be able to see my friends again or go to work again or to even have a game night again because, you know, I love having game nights, having people right. over. Right, and you you can't just look forward to that. You can't only focus on those things that might happen again someday. And I know it might not come for a long, long time. Yeah, you just have to live with both those things, that hope and that fear <laughs> somehow yeah. simultaneously. I mean... It's tough, but I think it shows how much Allison has to teach us here. Like, her tips are small and they're helpful, but they're Mm -hmm. really about making, like, this bigger shift. Um, They're, like, little steps to live more comfortably inside of of purgatory. So let's recap all of those tips really quick for all of you who are listening at home. People who are still adjusting to social distancing. First, embrace the use of sound to help you feel less alone. 
Second, use natural light and the lights inside your home and look out the window. All the time. Third, tackle your daily to-do list by breaking up your tasks. Do physical chores, mental chores, and be sure to make time for relaxing things too. Yeah, like a, you know, soak in the tub or something like that. Exactly. Fourth, time yourself and block out clear parts of your schedule as you work on those different tasks. And a fifth and final tip, accept that this is your new normal and that it'll pass, but it might not pass for a really, really long time. Here's one more thing Allison illustrated for us. You have to take all those tips and be flexible. Now, Allison might be the expert in living in self-quarantine, but there's something we haven't mentioned. Allison has a husband who usually went to work outside the home, but all of that changed a few days ago because of the virus. So now Allison has someone in her space at all times, and that's been kind of a curveball for her. Yeah, my husband's standing right behind me. <laughs> What's his name? Riley. And and Riley, is he at home with you now all the time? Uh, yes. Oh my god. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I'm sorry. My sorry, husband <laughs> is like the only person that I see now. So what is that like? <laughs> yeah, it's different, man. I am used to the house being quiet when he's gone all day at work. <laughs> My silence. <laughs> yeah, my silence is gone. <laughs> so Riley's kind of along for the ride here. He, he He's kind of lucky in that, like, I'm an expert in this. And mm-hmm. so it makes it a little bit easier for him, I think, more than other people. Is yeah. he giving you a look right now? I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> So, Allison, thank you so much for talking to us and telling us all about your life, what you've gone through and how you got to this point and for giving us tips, too, because we really need them. Thank you so really much. Really need them. Thank you, yeah. Allison. We appreciate it. <laughs> of course, I'm happy to help. Sam Brash and May Ortega, hosts of the new podcast from CPR News at a distance. You can find this and future episodes at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally today, moments of joy. We're sharing them as we come across them. Here's a video we saw on Twitter. a quartet of horn players from the Colorado Symphony. They each filmed themselves at home, then merged their parts together using the acapella app. And yes, if you're trying to place the song, it's Don't Stand So Close to Me by the police. Not long after, the symphony outdid themselves, releasing a video of 49 homebound musicians playing Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth. Here's concert master Yumi Wong Williams introducing the piece. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is a true hymn to humanity, expressing universal ideals of brotherhood, peace, and freedom for all. This crisis has made it all the more important 
to hold dear to these values and we're humbled by the opportunity to share this masterpiece. From all of us at the Colorado Symphony, stay safe, stay healthy, and take care of one another. We can't wait to see you at Betcher Concert Hall as soon as possible. to the Colorado Symphony for keeping the music alive and keeping their distance. If you're a Colorado musician affected by COVID-19 cancellations, we'd like to hear from you. Email us, coloradomatters at cpr.org. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.